If the U.S. government, the media, the legal system, and the church can't keep democracy alive, it's time for a state sale, a podcast on American democracy, because America is better than this. Welcome back to Estate Sale. This week, Lori is swamped with her own teaching as well as helping her kids learn via Zoom or whatever. Oh, and several other projects. She is busy. Anyway, she once again demonstrated bad judgment in turning the podcast over to me. As we are both swamped this week, we have been unable to meet and talk about the big news of the past few days, the passing of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. But we are as devastated as everyone and watching Senate Republicans with revulsion as they double down on their hypocrisy. This episode, however, relates to some of the big issues around the court, and that is namely the role that conservative white Christians play in our political landscape. I sat down with my friend Todd Littleton, who is a pastor from Tuttle, Oklahoma, a Southern Baptist pastor, in fact, but he and I have known each other via the internets for close to 10 years. We met in person one time by chance at the Denver airport, but now I've done a couple of Zoom podcast interviews the first for his own podcast called Pathological, and the second one to, with this episode where he was nice enough to spend some time chatting with me. Our entire conversation covered all sorts of ground, from the conservative takeover of the SBC, something we might put in his own episode sometime, to Todd's experience in the SBC from seminary to being a pastor in super conservative Oklahoma. But for today's episode, recorded right after the RNC Klanvention, we focus on the conventions, the ongoing conversation on race and the church, and finally I ask him for his explanation for why otherwise moral and spiritual people follow this president. Yeah. Uh, so have you been watching the, the conventions? I, I could not. I, I had to turn it off. I got home. I had a, a meeting Monday. And my wife had been watching and I walked in and she's like, you won't believe it. And I, I, I mean, literally I was there 10 minutes and I said, I can't. Yeah. So I was, I was preferring to watch the Lakers blow out their opponent by 40, <laughs> you know, than watch that. I mean, it was it, now I did watch, you know, the tone on Tuesday was, was, was different. Not that the, the subject or content was better, but the tone right. was more tolerable to sit and listen to. Yeah. And um, and last night I saw I saw Pence. Yeah, I don't I don't get him, but I, uh, I've read. By the way, I'm curious at what you have heard. Um, I have heard of some Christian leaders who are not in the Trump camp, yeah. but who know Pence. And there was one story, maybe in the Washington Post, where some one of them came up to him and said something about. You know, sort of a, it was actually, it sounded like a fairly generous and gentle nudge of saying, you know, be careful that you don't, you know, sell your soul for, and Pence said something like, well, it sounds easier than it actually is or something and just yeah. walked away. <clears throat> I mean, I yeah. personally, I've never thought Pence was very deep, you know, that yeah. he was, uh, but he has to know, you know, that this guy is a bad guy. And, um, you know, early on, there were reports that Trump uh, just absolutely just thinks Pence is a rube, you know, from Indiana and kind of makes fun of him behind his back. I don't know if that's still the case. Uh, yeah. Um, but, you know, knowing Trump, that seems 
possible. Did you watch any of the, the DNC stuff last week? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I watched uh, every night. I, d- yeah. I didn't end up watching all every night, but I was listening to, uh, I don't know if you've had a chance to listen to Straight White American Jesus, the, that podcast. They were having a conversation about, you know, because last week, and this, they, I think they did their podcast on Friday. So it was after uh, mm-hmm. Biden's, Joe's speech and everything else. And they were commenting on Franklin Graham's tweet uh, the next day about the absence of God. And, and um, I didn't watch the whole night, but one of the hosts was like, it was like Christian night, especially on Thursday night. It was, you know, people talking about Joe's Catholic faith, talking about uh, all these different community traditions that they were all kind of dedicated to. It was, it was, it was a stunning, even for Franklin Graham, it seemed. <laughs> well, I, I think what happened is the trolls, and the you know the counter movement had picked up that there were two caucuses that had left out under God in their pledging. Ah. So then then that got of course translated that the entire DNC convention had left under God out of the pledge. Right, which they had, which is not the case. No, yeah. every night, every night. I mean, hey, listen, listen. The opening prayer for Monday night. Anyone who could kind of question that. Uh, yeah. uh, Hispanic uh, minister. I mean, it's pretty powerful. Yeah. And so that's what that's the that's where the disconnect is. You know, so so bad. Yeah. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about race, if you don't mind. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Sure. I was. So I assume you've read that Jamar Tisby book, Color Compromise. Yes. Yeah. Yes, have I you have. have you read Robert Jones's new book on uh, White Too Long? I, you know, I've seen it and I've, I've got it in my to get. Well, and one of the reasons I was raising this is because I've read that book, but I haven't read T- Tisby. And mm-hmm. when I was reading on Twitter, uh, somebody said, oh, you know, actually, Jones, your book sounds an awful lot like what Jamar Tisby has argued. So it seems mm-hmm. to me that you're very familiar with what uh, is going on. So I'm mm-hmm. curious because for me, growing up Southern Baptist, again, it was Colorado Southern Baptist. So I mm-hmm. always felt like it was a little different. Right. But I have to say that reading this book on white too long, I mean, I've really been confronted by this whole role of white supremacy in our culture uh, in, mm-hmm. in general. And, and, mm-hmm. and you know, I, th- I think you've seen, I've said this on Facebook many times that while I think Southern Baptists probably deserve a lot of criticism, man, that criticism can go everywhere. I mean, here in Colorado in the 1920s, we had the second highest Klan membership. We were actually, Colorado was delayed entrance into the union because of race, because mm-hmm. Colorado uh, did not want to extend uh, bl- the vote to black men. And the Republican Party at that time, of course, was the party of, you know, so I've been really confronted by the, by in my own life. And even mm-hmm. as a liberal now who is not a church person, I'm confronted by that. But looking at it in the context of looking back at my church youth, I mean, all the times I went to, to, to church and I, I was not probably as active as you or even as Robert Jones in his book, he talks about going to church in Mississippi and Texas, you know, six or seven hours a week. I mean, that was mm-hmm. a big part of his, uh, mm-hmm. his growing up. But I'm sitting there now trying to make sense of that white supremacy, that kind of bedrock of it in the context, of course, of all these very good people. You know, all right. I mean, including my parents, including, right. you know, some of my best friends. And so I'm curious, you having now reading this and, and also you know, just what is, your, what is your take on that in terms of that role of, of white supremacy in both American culture, but also in the culture you grew up in? Yeah, I mean, I think that the good thing that has happened in, well, like Robert's book and Jamar's book and several others and some other relationships I have with uh 
say, uh, Adam Clark, who's at uh, um, Xavier and uh, teaches there, uh, is, is that until someone points out to you how the language works, the subtleties of racism gone underground are such that that's why we have this, these shocking uh, almost fits of rage that I, how dare you tell me I'm racist yeah. because we don't, you know, we're not uh, cued in to how that went. So, so for instance, it was enlightening to read that while Jim Crow laws were um, struck down related to black ownership of property, particularly just housing, the wiring of that idea remained in the real estate community such that it didn't have to be a law, right? but that it was already written in. And I don't know if you saw a couple of pieces out this week. So for instance, uh, the failure rate during COVID of small businesses has hit black and minority businesses harder than white. Hmm. And there's some reason I just saw a piece yesterday where a couple put their home up, mixed race couple put their home up for sale to go get an appraisal. You see it? I did. I saw that. Yes. Yeah. The appraisal came in the first time at like $386,000 and they said, okay, well, let's do this. Let's remove all these pictures. Uh, Just a white dad at home. When they come to appraise, it appraised almost a hundred thousand dollars more. Yeah. Now that's 2020. Yeah. You know, now we could say, yeah, that's what it is. It's 2020, but I, that, that's just to give a, a scapegoat excuse that that's this sort of thing that I yeah. think has gone underground. And, you know, I would have never thought, listen, growing up, I had never thought to think about what does colorblind racism mean where, Oh, I don't see race. Well, right. That's because you don't see me. Uh, I would have never, right. I would have, I would have taken that the way it was given to me. Right. To mean that we don't we don't let the color of a person's skin impact right. us, but that's not what really was being said. Right. And so I, I think what's happened in this particular moment that I saw a short clip this morning calling the, the, the new civil rights movement, um, you know, with the with the Milwaukee Bucks yesterday and the whole NBA. Right. Uh, was I have to admit to growing a completely unaware you know, so I, I've connected with a, a friend from high school. I ran into him at a, a Walmart in Mustang, and he's stocking. I hadn't seen him in forever, and I knew he was in, at one time in the service, lived in Houston. So, believe it or not, I mean, like half a dozen times over the course of three months, we run into each other. So, mm. we, you know, we'd have, we've talked, we've chatted, we've Facebook messaged, you know, and, and I, I always thought he's the coolest guy. He, he drove the slickest 1955 Chevy to school. I mean, it's a dream, man. It's a dream. But I, I think back and I go, wow, I wonder if I was a jerk, you know? I wonder if I were unaware of these things. And then you wonder, well, what about my peers at that time who, who didn't know that they were actually being discriminated against, you know? Yeah. And, and, yeah. and so it does leave you going like, wow, I, I hope so. I had another guy from, from high school friend me on Facebook. I hadn't seen that guy since I, it might've been like sophomore in high school. Mm. Last time I remember Sydney and he friended me. So we, we exchange little Facebook messages, but you know, you, you just, you, you start thinking, wow, well, was I an idiot to that guy? You know, because I did, I did, I was unaware. And this isn't like, you know, 
rambling a bit, but th this isn't like the whole woke thing. That's not what we're, I'm not talking about. I'm talking about a sensibility that you become aware of that the very mm -hmm. language that was ingrained in your own vocabulary to talk about circumstances that you encountered mm -hmm. actually come labored with this undercurrent that man, totally oblivious to. Yeah. I mean, just completely unaware. Uh, fortunately, this confrontation hit me. So I started, you know, doing some more reading and I, I started, you know, interacting with some, some folks. So I mentioned Adam Clark and I, I've had him on the podcast, I think once or twice, but I was also at a, a conference where he gave this talk on MLK it was just amazing. Hmm. And stuff. I just, I mean, you're like, like, like you want to slink down in the seat, you know, and you yeah. want to pretend yeah. that you're not even there when you start yeah. thinking like, I may have done some of that stuff, yeah. you know? And yeah. So I it's mean, been, it's been very convicting. Straight white American Jesus podcast. Uh, one of the things they did was to talk about just the very image of Jesus in almost every church in America. You know, the one. Yeah. Oh, yeah. One that looks like oh, Matthew yeah. McConaughey. Yes. Um, and, yes. Uh, or Charles Manson, depending on <laughs> I <laughs> but, saw that one too. Yeah. But, um, and just talking about, and, and I have to say for some of my, some of my conservative friends, I'm certainly not saying this for all, people who think in very literal terms, it is really hard for them to think about this in that kind of almost subconscious subliminal kind of messaging. That's just a constant. I mean, it makes perfect sense to me thinking back that my dad would say things about Hispanics that were mm -hmm. at both laudatory. And then also, you know, at the same time were not. And, um, but you know, so it didn't have to be over racism. Mm -hmm, but it right. was this very subtle kind of sense. And Robert Jones really, I mean, he starts out his book by saying, I came to realize that the denomination I was raised in uh, was founded on the premise that chattel slavery was not only possible, it was actually divinely ordained. And then he takes that forward to essentially saying that then I realized that in the culture I was raised, white bodies and white lives were prioritized and valued more than those of color. And, and again, in a very, so, you know, that example you just said in 2020 of those appraisers going into that house. Now yeah. it's very possible that whoever did that appraisal is actually a racist, mm -hmm. but it's also possible that person is, uh, is not conscious at all of it and may have in fact, black friends uh, in, in their household or in their, in their circle, in their network, that it's not a conscious thing, you know, that right. it is, it right. is at that level. And, and, and that's what makes it so insidious and so difficult to get at. You know, one of my best friends from high school, I've tried to talk to him about race. And one of the things I've always said is, is it became clear to me that he defines race only as a conscious hostile act and that uh, racists are bad people. And since he doesn't have a conscious uh, hostile feeling towards people of color, and does not consider himself to be a bad person, he cannot ergo be racist, you know, and right. that's, that makes it pretty tough to get at some of these systemic issues. And, oh, yeah, it, you know, I did you ever read um, Between the World and Me with Tana Hasi Coates? Oh, yeah, I've got it. I, I've read yeah. parts of it. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Well, I mean, I had the experience of reading that and, and like, wow, you know, and instead of listening, I had an older gentleman friend who, you know, got it and read it. And the thing that, you know, he picked up on was the utter sense of hopelessness that was conveyed in the book. And I, and I get that, but that's after you kind of sit and marinate in the, the 
complete disbelief that someone today lives in the world that he describes mm. and has to think about passing that world on to his son. Mm-hmm. So while as someone of faith, I would say, hey, I think there are a, a different way to look at the future hope. And he is much more cynical about any of those possibilities. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that tended to be the thing that this gentleman focused on mm. was, well, wait a minute. Uh, no, there's there's some hope here. And I'm going to go, yeah, before you ever get there, if you can't sit and grasp that this is it, and then all we did, and then it becomes, pardon the expression, it's been used enough, but then it becomes whitesplaining. Hmm. Well, when I grew up, you know, this is, you know, and you're like, wait a minute, you, you, you don't get to overlay your growing up onto their wow. experience in a, in a way to say they shouldn't feel this way. Right. That's just like, I mean, like, that's the first lesson in empathy. You know, yeah. it, you are right. It, it, it is it is something that to learn that those sorts of things went underground and now, and now everybody can't believe why are these things coming up again? Yeah. Well, it's because yet, it's because we overlaid a veneer to say, well, if you saw it this way, you know, so NBA. Yeah. Don't you know that we've helped them have such a good life? Like, like wait a second. Yeah. Did you happen to catch last night? Did you, uh, Chris Weber, uh, uh, I don't know if you've seen that. And I then Robert, Robert Ory. Robert mm-hmm. Oh man. I loved him when he was with the Rockets. Oh, yeah, I did too. Uh, yeah. thing, but, uh, but listen, watching those two men just about in tears, yes. um, about thinking about not only their own kids or their own kind of upbringing and in Chris yeah. Weber, it felt like there was a sense of him realizing how close he was to being, you know, in that situation. Yeah. Um, and you know, Chris Rock, I, I saw him one time say, um, you may have seen this too, where he said uh, to a policeman from six feet in, he's Chris Rock. He's famous. He's a famous black man from six feet out. He's another black man who yeah. needs to watch it because he may in fact be, that's the part that is, is stunning to me. I agree with what you said. I've been listening, trying to read um, uh, Kendi on how to be an anti-racist. I've been trying mm-hmm. to read, I don't know if you read Austin Channing Brown or listened to her at all. But she's written a book essentially on living with dignity as a black woman in in America, and she doesn't pull any punches. I mean, she's a, a woman of faith, and and um, she you know she even talks about the difference between black Jesus and white Jesus, um, in a way that's really really stunning. But I've been trying to listen to these voices, and and again, like you said, then kind of overlay my own experience during that time and realize how oblivious I was during that entire time, and how my privilege allowed me to look away. Uh, even if I did see race or I did see race issues or police brutality or mm-hmm. poverty or redlining or anything like that, I could look at it intellectually and then I could sort of move on and go, you know, about my way. And knowing that for for people of color, they don't get have that option. They're they're going to mm-hmm. live with that on, in, in, mm-hmm. on a daily basis. And yeah. yeah. Um, We've chatted back and forth. I know we have a lot of, of similar kind of approaches here, but let me just ask you, I, I don't want to keep you all afternoon, but can you give me your explanation as to why evangelicals at white evangelicals, let me be very clear on that because mm-hmm. as Dwight McKissick and several mm-hmm. people have demonstrated, a lot of black evangelicals are not at all happy with either Trump or Al Mohler or anything like that. What is your explanation for those people who, I'm going to assume are incredibly devout about their faith, about their spirituality, that read the Bible on a regular basis, that believe in values, that believe in 
morality, that believe in, in faith and family and all those things, how they can align themselves with, you know, the question, how can they align themselves with a man who seems to lack, no, actually, I think does lack all of those things. Yeah. That's, a, I got to tell you, I mean, that's, that's a tough question. I could probably be pretty catty, which not terribly helpful. So let, let me take a shot this way. Okay. In, since the late 1800s, a particular um, explanation or expectation for how the world's going to roll out uh. includes in it a, an expectation for a particular era of persecution. This is premillennial, postmillennial discussions, mm -hmm. correct? This would, be, this would be a this would yeah this would be an eschatological sort of an end times kind of right. here's how I think what's going to happen, and I think the subtleties of it have have driven the expectation that, you know, what's ironic is is that one and at one point we would we would say, you know, uh, I remember growing up thinking this way. Well, you know, the world's just going to keep getting worse and worse and worse and worse and worse, right? And, and if we really wanted the end to come, we just probably wouldn't fight it much. Mm. We just let it get worse and worse and worse and worse. Cause I mean, if, if it finally reaches that tipping point, then it's all going to be done and God's going to, you know, put it all back together. And so, you know, why, why resist it kind of right. thing. You know, and then you, then, you know, and then you wake up and you go, I don't know exactly that that's what it says, but there is a, there is a good percentage of people who may not buy uh, the Darby theory or the C.I. Schofield, you know, Bible notes that propagated this until you got to LaHaye. For those who did not grow up in conservative evangelical circles, Todd is referencing John Darby, a 19th century English theologian who was a big part of the premillennial thought, as well as C.I. Schofield, who fought for the Confederacy, by the way, the author of the popular Schofield Reference Bible which is still in use in fundamentalist circles and was part of the inspiration for more recent end-time thinkers like Tim LaHaye of Left Behind fame. Uh, but it's, it's to borrow from the experience that we've ta been talking about with race, it has, it has become so wired in an expectation in that particular place that even if you sat there and say, hey, I don't think that's what it says, it's been so long in, in the um, wired in that in the most popular sorts of conversations, popularized books, popular expectations. So when you, you then kind of start to waffle from that, you're not sure where to go. Hmm. So enter in this thing that now, well, let's, let's kind of now emphasize the fact that, well, maybe we don't know how it's going to work out, but let's emphasize where we're all going to go. So which Jeffress is, you know, most of the time spending it about, you know, heaven and what heaven's like. So now immediately what's happening here? Well, let's try let's try to get some influence and so uh, some will look for a pseudo theocracy, let's let's kind of let's kind of take some power. And and at that point let's influence the morals. Uh, so then you have the old, old debate out of the culture wars, you know, can you legislate morality? Uh, you know, is it proper for me to tell someone who's particular moral fabric and framework and predicated on say i'm going to use and that's a pejorative um well let's say ten commandments let's just let's just let's just okay. be essential essentialist in that way because there's a, there's a breath to that uh that, that doesn't 
doesn't tie us ethnically and it doesn't necessarily tie us to particular religious. Um, but, but let's say someone is, you know, moral grid is, 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 is different than that. So I'm now to tell them that my moral grid is superior to their moral grid. Well, yeah, because, you know, and then I get all the, I build on all the reasons. Uh, and so I, I think that when now you're reckoning with, so maybe it doesn't work out like I always thought it did. So maybe we're free to engage. So, mm. I mean, I, I think we talked about it once before, you know, when you read the book of Jerry, uh, the book of Jerry Falwell, uh, and you find out that when he finally made his commitment to participate in uh, the culture wars with the moral majority and be an instrumental figure, he went and had all his prior sermons where he had said, stay out of politics and had them expunged from the Thomas Road Bible, uh, the, the library, all their, all their recordings, all that. They, they, there, there to be no trace that he ever in his past said, no. Um, I did not know that. Oh, yeah, the Book of Falwell, a uh, um, young lady who, uh, really sharp young lady, uh, had read it and gave it to me to read. And, and early, on in the, early on there, you find out that's, that's kind of the deal. So, so when that happens and you, now you've made this adjustment, all bets are off. You know, let's, let's and, uh, I, you know, it's funny. I, I read a sermon a day. I never did that till last year. I, I, I read people I would never have read. And, and so I'm, I've become a, a bit of a fan of Fleming Rutledge. She's uh, 82 now. So she, she preached an Easter sermon in 99. I read it this morning. And uh, she was talking about power. And she had this paragraph about what power does, you know, mm. what, what, how, how enticing and alluring. And, and, right. and I mean, I just have to say that if we were going to, if we were going to kind of, you know, shorten my answer. I, I'd have to say that this idea that I could have influence and power has really superseded what you read in the Bible about the way Jesus exercised power, not right. even close to the same. Right. Not even close. And so you have to really create of even future judgment, this particular sort of imagery that allows you to do things you wouldn't do. So that group became I mean, you, you, you'd recognize they, they're terribly utilitarian. So to the point that now you can look at it and go, how do I support someone who by character, and many of them will admit this, well, I wish he wouldn't tweet that. And right. I wish he was a little, his manner was a little bit different. When I grew up, that was essential. I mean, I mean, I mean, that was essential. And now it's, but he helps us get what we want. So it's utilitarian. Right. So the sad part is, so, so here's the sad part. The sad part is, let's just say, maybe we don't know the, 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 the religious experience of the president. It's sad to me that, that some who spend most of life consumed with the concern for that are willing to use somebody who, by their using that person, actually could be, if they really believed what they were saying, could be damning him. Mm. So it's a it's an interesting sort of mm -hmm. thing where where you know you and I might look at it and go, man, he's really using them. And then you're going like, yeah, but they have to be using him. Yeah. Yeah. So this yeah. is a transactional relationship that frankly, if one is using one for political expediency and the other one's for political power, right, then the things you tell people you're concerned about, uh, Brad Rayleigh, for instance, are out the window. Yeah. Because now I lose all moral authority to say, well, Brad, let me try to talk you back into this thing that we've, you know, that you left, you know, and, right. and you're like, well, like, wait a minute, well, you got <laughs> political power to offer me or, you know, right. you know what I'm saying, right? Yeah. I mean, 
that becomes kind of the thing that I look at and I go, I understand the animosity toward the figure of 45. But I look at it and I go, like, if people really believed what they had been saying for years and years and years, uh, how could they use a man? Interesting. Uh, how could they use a man? That's there was a piece. Uh, so Lori and I, I don't know if you inter- listened to this. We inter- interviewed uh, uh, Ron Sider. He seems like an incredibly genuine, incredibly earnest person, and and um, he he really holds out hope for this what he calls this evangelical middle. But in there, I read to him a, a quote from it was from the Atlantic. I can't remember who wrote it. But it was essentially a rearticulation of what you just said, said that for many evangelicals, they don't want piety from this president, because if they were really interested in piety, they would have pushed him aside for Pence, because they could have that, but they want power and they want, they want his bluster. And I was also struck by when you were talking about eschatology, something that's always confused me, the pre-millennial, post-millennial kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Robert Jones actually talks about that in the context of the civil war and says that uh, Manley, the first president of, you know, the Southern Baptist convention they they were as i understand it they were post millennials believing that slavery was a part of creating that millennial perfect and then after that then would be the return of christ after the civil war they switched to pre-millennial um and then and then that was an interesting thing so what you're describing to a certain degree is there's some kind of mix going on here right between the world's going to end anyway jesus is going to come back and so that's that's a good thing but then also saying, but in the meantime, we can take control and get some control and some power and exert this moral authority, right? I mean, it seems it seems yeah. like a little I, bit of a, a mixed contradiction almost at, at a yeah. I, I'm not aware of the the particular illustrations he would use post Civil War, but I can give you this illustration that um, up until uh, uh, Criswell left the pulpit at First Dallas, which was, I want to say, like in the 80s. First Dallas had two pastors that were there over 40 years, George W. Truett, W.A. Criswell. George W. Truett was a post-millennial. W.A. Criswell was a pre-millennial. Every pastor since Criswell has been pre-millennial, Jeffress included. So I think that's kind of the tug of war of, you know, what sort of involvement do we have? So uh, I think it's Luther had a, a two kingdom vision. You know, there's yeah. the kingdom of the world and the, and the kingdom of God. I don't know if that provides for some a particular framework to be able to pick and choose which arena or sphere, if you will, that uh, I'm going to I'm going to exercise this particular influence. Mm-hmm. And over here, I'm going to participate in this kind of influence. I Billy Graham's granddaughter just saying that her this was a, a an embarrassment to her grandfather's uh, mm-hmm. beliefs. And in that discussion, boy, it got heated. Some of the people I went to church with back in the day, I mean, there were a couple of, of linchpins. It was LGBTQ and then abortion. And I've been so struck by, and this I think is speaking to this whole kingdom issue you're talking about, and even this pre-millennial, post-millennial kind of melding that we have, is that on one hand, you've got these very same people when they see something like climate change or when they see something that is even even the pandemic, where it's just sort of like, well, we just need to turn to prayer. That's the solution. But that's never the solution with LGBTQ issues or nor with abortion. It's it's not. And and so I'm like, nor with gun ownership. Right, exactly. Yeah. It's it's an interesting puzzle. Thanks for listening today. While not included in this episode, Todd and I both talked about the role that fundraising plays in keeping issues like abortion in the evangelical mind. We will have to see how this recent court vacancy impacts this issue. 
whatever happens, I know Lori and I are in agreement that the white evangelical search for political power has been a destructive force on American democracy. Once again, if you enjoy this podcast, please let your friends know about it. And if you have time, drop in wherever you listen and give us a review. See you next time. It's time for a state sale, a podcast on American democracy, because America is better than this.